Well, good morning. Welcome to River City Church. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. It is good to be with you guys this morning. Looking forward to opening God's word with you. Uh, If you are new or visiting, I just want to say welcome. It is good to have you here. Um, If there are any ways that we can serve you or help you get connected to the community here at River City, we'd love to be able to do that. And so uh, come find me afterwards or uh, Becca or any of the people that you've seen up front or on the slides. We really would love to get to know you more and help you get connected to the community here. So uh, additionally, if you have any questions about uh, the passages we study this morning, uh, just uh, anything I say, come find me after the service. Uh, I don't always have all the answers, uh, but I would love to help you uh, to learn more and to, and to dig in more. And so if you have questions, come find me. So uh, this year we have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew together. And uh, for the past few weeks, we've been in a section of Jesus' teaching in chapters 18 through 20 where he's highlighting the upside-down nature of his kingdom. You see, uh, the values of his kingdom, the relationships in, in Jesus' kingdom, its structures, they all stand at odds with the, with the default way in which we understand and interact with the world around us. And so as we began uh, the section in chapter 18 a couple of weeks ago, we saw Jesus turning the world's understanding of greatness on his head. We saw how in his kingdom the way up is actually down. In his kingdom, the way you become great is not by being concerned about um, your own good, but about being radically committed to the good of others. Last week, we saw Jesus upending the way that both his world and our world looked at uh, the, uh, the, the relationship of marriage and divorce and singleness. And we saw, that, we saw that marriage isn't about us, it's actually about God, and it's about reflecting his image and, and his character to the world, which is why we place a really high value on doing those things his way. And instead of being consumers in marriage, we want to be covenant keepers because that's a reflection of the, of the God who marriage is designed to, to show. And so we saw as well that in his kingdom, singleness isn't viewed as a license to pursue whatever you want. And it's also not seen as a, as a punishment of any kind of way. Instead, like marriage, it's a calling to live for the glory of God in all things. And so what we see happening over and over and over again in these chapters is that Jesus is showing us how our assumptions about the way that life and relationships work they're not, just, they're not just insufficient and unfulfilling. What he's showing us is that they're backwards. They're upside down. You see, they're not just different. They're opposite to the ways of God and to the ways of his kingdom. You see, and nowhere is it more important for us to see the upside down nature of Jesus' kingdom than our passage this morning. You see, because the assumptions that we're going to see Jesus turning upside down this morning have to do, uh, they have to do with how we get into his kingdom in the first place. They have to do with the essence of salvation itself. You see, nowhere is there more at stake and nowhere does the default mode of the human heart stand further at odds with Jesus' upside down kingdom than our passage this morning. You see, the default mode of the human heart is self-salvation. The default mode of the human heart is self-salvation you see, we think we can earn it we, or become worthy of it or deserving of it or we think we can just define it for ourselves. But we're going to see Jesus saying this morning is that entrance into his kingdom, into eternal life, into true salvation, it's not a wage that can be earned. It is not a prize that can be won. Instead, it is an inheritance that can only be received. And so uh, with that in mind, let's pray and we'll read our passage this morning. God, we come before you this morning and we just say that we really need you. God, uh, yeah, our passage just deals with some, some things that cut to the, the cut to the quick of our hearts oftentimes. And so, God, we just ask that humbly, graciously, you might be speaking to us, that you might be working in us, that you might be um, making your heart known and your will known to us as we study. 
God, I just come to you. I'm tired this morning. I feel exhausted in all kinds of ways. Um, God, and I just pray that in my weakness, your strength might be made known. God, as we study that, uh, your word would come to life, not because of me, but because your spirit's at work and alive, speaking and teaching through me. And so, God, uh, I don't rely on me this morning. God, we rely on you. God, we rely on you to teach us rightly, but also to enable our hearts to respond to you. And so, God, we just come with dependent hearts asking you to work. God, grateful that you love to do that. God, for our good, we pray, and for your glory. Amen. This morning, we're in Matthew chapter 19. Just then... A man came up to Jesus and he asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life or to get eternal life, he says. Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good, and if you want to enter life, keep the commands. Well, which ones, he inquired. And Jesus replied, well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You see, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, and they asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and he said, With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. You see, the many who are last will be, the many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. It's the word of the Lord. See, as we study this morning, I want to I show you three assumptions about salvation that Jesus turns upside down this morning. Three things that he flips on its head as we study The first is the nature of it. The second is what keeps us from it. And the last is how to get it. See, at the heart of our passage this morning, what Jesus is doing is he is upending our assumptions about the nature of salvation itself. You see, the passage opens in verse 16 with this guy who comes to Jesus and he asks him this question. He says, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? In the passage, Jesus uh, uses the phrase, enter the kingdom. The disciples talk about being saved. Those, Those three phrases, eternal life, salvation, Entering the kingdom, they're all synonymous for the same thing, right? And so this, the question is, this young man is coming to ask Jesus, is, how do I get in? How do I get the life that I'm looking for? How, how do I become saved? And unlike the Pharisees we saw last week, this guy's question is genuine, right? He refers to Jesus as teacher, right? It's a, it's a sign of respect and admiration. He's, and he's not just looking for personal affirmation. He's not just looking for Jesus to affirm what he already thinks, you see, he has a true sense that he's lacking something, and so he keeps asking questions, right? He keeps asking and pressing in. But while his question is genuine, it reveals a fundamentally flawed assumption. You see, this young man believes that the eternal life, that salvation, is something that he can get by doing enough good things. You see, and the truth is, his assumption is not unique. 
In fact, it's the default mode of the human heart, and it's self-salvation. You see, we don't want to rely on anyone or anything to, be, to, to save ourselves. We don't want to admit our inability. We don't want to admit our insufficiency. We don't want to admit our need for help. You see, and so like this young man, we believe that we can save ourselves by our obedience, through our own effort, by doing enough good things, that we can tip the divine scales in our favor, that our good can eventually outweigh our bad so that we can merit salvation, we can solve the problem ourselves. You see, that's the default mode of every human heart. Jesus' response, what he does is he flips this thinking on its head. He responds to this young man's question. He says, well, if you're looking for something good to do, uh, why don't you go ahead and keep the commandments? When the young man asks him, which ones? Jesus highlights a number of the commands that have to do with the, the horizontal relationship with other, right? Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, those kinds of things, right? And let's just assume for a minute this guy is being, this guy is being honest when he answers those questions, right? It's pretty impressive, Right? He would have been this incredibly moral person. Right? He would have been looked at as in his community, in the world, as, wow, this guy's like got his stuff together. Like, this is an, like a very good person, a very incredibly morally upright person. You see, but what he clearly senses is that that is not enough. You see, others would have looked at him as a pinnacle and what, he's, what he knows internally in his own heart is that it is not enough. He's still lacking something, and it's weighing on him. You see, this is the problem of religiosity. See, see, religion is all about what you do to try to get to God, to try to earn a status or a standing or a favor with him. And You see, when your status before God, when the state of your eternal soul depends on what you do, it either ends in self-righteous pride, like we saw in the Pharisees a couple of weeks ago, because you think that you have done enough, and you look down on everybody else who you think hasn't. Or it ends in this constant uncertainty and worry. Have I done enough? Am I enough? Where do I stand? Where do I sit? I just don't know. See, that's what's happening with this young man. See, he's asking the right questions. He's asking about life. But he's looking for answers down a road that will only lead to death. You see, the truth is, Jesus says, there's only one who is good. There's only one who is good enough. And it's God himself. You see, salvation isn't found in measuring the relationship between your good and your bad. It's found in relation to the only one who is good. You see, did you notice at the very end of the passage, Jesus is talking about what awaits those who have, who have given everything to follow him. And he talks about the reward that is there, right? That's this hundredfold reward. And he says at the end, he says, they will receive this great reward. And he says, and they will inherit eternal life. You see, an inheritance is not something you earn. It is not something you merit. It's something you received based on who you're related to. You see, this young man, he's come to Jesus, and what he's thinking is, I'm almost there. I'm, I'm, I'm just, it's just out of reach. It's, I just need a little bit to get me over the edge. I'm doing pretty good. I just need a little bit of help. Jesus, can you just point me in the right direction? Just that one last thing, I need to kind of put me over the hump so my good finally outweighs my bad. And Jesus tells him, no, son, you're, uh, you're not close. In fact, you're not even on the right road. You see, eternal life is not a wage that can be earned. It is an inheritance that must be received. You see, what this man lacked wasn't good deeds, but was a relationship with the God who is good. C.S. Lewis famously wrote this. He says, we don't come to, as people to God as bad people trying to become good people, 
The only way we are able to come is as rebels who are asked to lay down our arms. You see, that's the kind of God that we come to. There's never enough good, right? Because God's standard is perfection. See, and that brings us to the second thing we see Jesus turning upside down in our passage. You see, he shows us what is really keeping us from eternal life. This is what Jesus is trying to help him see when he responds in verse 21. He says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And it says that the man went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus here. He, he's not telling this man, hey, you can earn your salvation by keeping the commands or by going and selling all your stuff. No, what Jesus is doing is he's setting him up, right? He's setting him up to show him what he's really lacking. And I just need you to see this as well. Jesus is not doing that out of pride. He's not doing it arrogantly. He is not doing it to just like stick it to this guy. You see, in the parallel passage of this story in Mark, it says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Before Jesus says any of this, it says he looked at him and he loved him. You see, Jesus' words for this young man are not out of spite. They're not out of pain. He's not trying to stick it to him. He's not trying to vindicate himself. You see, he loves this young man. You see, he wants him to see what has been keeping him from eternal life. You see, Jesus is being a good shepherd who is leading a blind sheep to see something that he cannot you see, this man was doing great with commands five through nine. You see, but the truth is he had overlooked the first and the most important command, that you shall have no other gods before me. You see, the truth is that we are all worshipers. We cannot not worship. You see, the question isn't if we will worship something. It's what are we going to worship? You see, and whatever you worship is the thing that holds the overwhelming, controlling influence in your life. Whatever you worship is your God. You might not call it God, it might, you not, might not think about it as God, but whatever you worship, the thing that has the controlling influence in your life is your God. And you see, and for this man, it was his wealth, his possessions that were his God. You see, it was the thing that held the controlling influence in his life, the thing that he truly worshipped, the thing that he held above before the one and true God. You see, and in love as a good shepherd, Jesus is pointing this to this worship. He's pointing to this allegiance, to this false God. He's pointing to this as the thing that is keeping this young man from entering the kingdom at all. You see, he doesn't have a morality problem. He does not have an actions problem. You see, what he has is a heart problem. You see, he loves something more than he loves God. And he goes away sad because the cost of following the one true God, the cost of loving the one true God above everything else means that he's going to have to sell everything. And it's a cost he cannot bring himself to pay. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, Jesus knows that this man's wealth has become his means to personal identity and power and a sense of meaning in life, that it has become the idolatrous God of his life, and so Jesus calls him to give everything away, exchanging the God of wealth for the eternal treasure found in following Jesus alone. You see, God does not call all people everywhere to give everything they have to the poor, but he does call everyone everywhere to put nothing above loyalty to him. See, the passage this morning is not a call for every one of us to just go sell all of our stuff and live on the streets. But it's an invitation that we might ask ourselves, what is it that we are unwilling to give to him? What is the thing that we hold above him? What is the thing that we love more than him? 
I just want to encourage you this morning what, to ask, what is that thing for you? What is it that holds the controlling influence in your life? That, what is it that you are loyal to above all else? You see, at River City, we talk a lot about uh, surface idols and source idols. Surface idols are things like money and relationships and careers and plans and, and people and kids and, and all that kind of stuff, right? They're things on the surface of our lives, but, but one of the things we try to highlight oftentimes is that those are not the thing that is at the bottom. You see, there's something underneath that, and we talk all the time about, about source idols, right? The source idols of power and control and approval and comfort. You see, somebody can have a a surface idol of money, but for all different kinds of reasons. You see, this young man, money was on the surface for him, but his source idol, if it was comfort, he might have been characterized by using his money in an attempt to distance himself from the needs of others or, or to get away from the demands of life or just to avoid boredom at all costs. Giving away his wealth would have ruined his comfort. If his source idol was approval, he may have been characterized by using his wealth to get the acceptance of people he wanted the approval of or people he respected, whether it was a love of his family member or a friend, or he might have tried to use his wealth to get someone to admire him. And so giving away his money would have, would have caused him to lose the approval that it would get him, that he was looking for to get from it. If his source idol was control, he, he may have been characterized by having an incredibly detailed control of his finances, and looking down on others who might not have been as good with their money. He may have been constantly worried about maintaining his wealth amidst the economic, uh, the economic turmoil that was constantly at foot in the ancient world. And Losing his wealth would have meant losing control. It would have, it would have meant a loss of power, a loss of, a loss of his ability to be in charge of things. And If his source idol was power, he may have been characterized by using his wealth to gain authority and influence over others, to either giving or withholding wealth in order to get what he wanted. If, if he would have given someone advice about their money and they didn't take it, he would have felt personally attacked. Losing his wealth would have been a loss of his power, a loss of his influence. It would have been a total surrender. Whatever the case, this young man comes to Jesus, and all the money is on the surface, whatever is underneath it, he is unwilling to give. You see, the question I want to encourage you to ask this morning is what are you worshiping? What is the thing that holds the overwhelming, controlling influence in your life? You see, sometimes to find what's underneath, sometimes it's helpful to look at what's on the surface. These questions are just a few questions that might help you do that. They're adapted from a guy named David Powelson. I think they just do a great job of helping us expose our idols. I just want to encourage you to think about some of these questions as I ask them. What, What do I spend my money on? And what gets cut when there isn't enough? What commands does the Bible give that I simply refuse to obey? What would I be crushed to lose or angry with God if he kept it from me? What do you worry about the most? What preoccupies you? What keeps you up at night? What do you daydream about? What makes you feel the most self-worth? Or what is the thing that you are the proudest of? What is it that you want to be known for? What do you lead with in conversations? When you meet someone, what is the thing you want them to know about you? What's the most important thing? What do you run to when things are going bad or difficult? Where do you look for comfort? What is it that you really want and expect out of life? What's the thing that you think would make you most happy if you had it? Paulson writes, the answers to these questions, they reveal what a person is truly trusting in. No matter whom he or she professes to worship, the answer to these questions describe what a person has elevated to the place of God in his or her life. It is that person's functional 
Savior. You see, this morning, I want to encourage you to ask the questions about what is going on in your own heart. See, those questions, they're meant to help you process, to see what's on the surface so that you might ask the deeper questions about what's underneath it. Before we go on, I just want to take a minute to talk about Jesus' words about money here. If you've been at River City long enough, you know, we don't, we don't really talk about money that often. It's not like this topic we just keep hitting on or coming back to, but it is a big deal in our passage this morning, and I would be amiss if I didn't have a conversation with us about Jesus' words on money this morning. You see, money isn't this real guy's problem, um, but Jesus highlights how wealth makes it hard for people to enter the kingdom. You see, what happens is wealth insulates us. It distracts us from our spiritual need. It feeds our desire for self-sufficiency and self-salvation, right? When we have enough, we don't need to rely on anyone or anything else. And so our goal is to always have enough, no matter what happens, to always have enough so that we don't have to rely on anyone or anything else. In fact, to rely on someone else, especially for money in our world, is oftentimes seen in the Midwest, right? The pull yourself up by your bootstraps region, right? That's like the cardinal sin, Right, is to rely on someone else or something for money. See, and so we don't ever want to do it. See, but the truth is, is that our wealth and our pursuit of it, we want it and it insulates us from realizing our true need, the actual dependence that we do have, from admitting that we do need help, that we are not sufficient on our own. See, it blinds us to what we're truly lacking. And unless you think that Jesus is talking to someone else, I just want to, I just need you to hear this. We live in the richest country in the history of the world. By every possible margin, all of us are wealthy. We always think about the rich and we think of someone else. You see, we cannot read this passage and think, yes, the rich young ruler loved his stuff more than Jesus, we have to say, and his followers are many and I might be one. See, the truth is that 20% of U.S. Christians give nothing every year. The vast majority of Christians in the United States give about 3%. And there's only 12% of U.S. Christians that give 10% or more. And statistically, what we find when you look at the stats is that the more people earn, that people always say, the more I earn, the more I'll give. Statistically, what you find is that the more people earn, the less that they give. It's just hard numbers, right? You see, where your money goes reveals your heart and what you love better than anything else. It is, in most ways, the, the, the easiest way to see the things that your heart longs for. And I just want to encourage you this morning to talk with God about that. See, some of you were super relieved when I said that Jesus isn't calling all of us to give all of our stuff away and sell it. And we were like, that was close, right? <laughs> like, I was, like, kind of worrying about that, right? And I can breathe easy now. I just want to... D.A. Carson writes this. He says, The person who is too quickly relieved by this observation might be precisely the kind of person God is calling to imitate this young man. I want to encourage you. Talk with God about your money. Talk with him about the way you use it and what he longs for you to do with it. You see, for so many of us, we are blind to the fact that that our money is the thing that controls our lives. It runs our families. It influences our choices and our lives. And Jesus is inviting this young man to be free of that slavery. You see, it has never brought life. It has never brought blessing. It has never brought the life people are looking for. And yet we think it endlessly will. You see, but it's not just money that's hard for us to give up to follow Jesus. You see, we we run after all kinds of trinkets, 
thinking that it's real treasure. And even when we realize that for the junk it is, we find ourselves consumed by it, stuck in it, unable to quit it. And the question is, you see, the question is why? Why? See, and that brings us to the last thing that Jesus turns upside down in our passage this morning. How do you get the true treasure? How do you get the life you're looking for? How do you get Jesus and his kingdom? You see, Jesus plainly says, no one can be saved. He says, it is utterly impossible for a religious person, a rich person, indeed anyone to be saved. You see, nobody can earn their way into heaven. No one can, can, can merit their way into the kingdom. You see, with humanity, it is, impo- it is not just, imp- it's not just difficult. Jesus says, it's impossible. You see, it's not just hard for us to change our hearts. It's impossible. You see, you can't just change the color you like. It's not how it works. You can't just change what you love. You see, this this rich young man could not bring himself to cease worshiping the ruling force in his life, his great possessions. And you need to hear this. Neither can you. You do not have the power to change the things you love. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. You see, we cannot change our hearts. Oh, but God can. You see, he does it by showing us a superior love. He does it by showing us a better treasure. The great 19th century preacher, Thomas Chalmers, he said it this way, neither you nor anyone else can dispossess the heart of an old affection. The heart is not so constituted. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And if that new affection be the love of God, oh, it shall draw the heart of the sinner towards him. See, the way religion works is that it shows you your your sin, it shows you your failures, and it keeps that in front of your face so that you're motivated by by fear or shame or guilt or or blinded by self-righteousness. See, but the gospel works differently. See, in the gospel, what God does is he shows us who we really are. He shows us our, our deep need for a savior as he did for this young man. But then what he does is he shows you Jesus and all that he has done for you in spite of who you are. He shows you how Jesus has loved you and sacrificed himself for you and how he has given himself for you. He sees so that you aren't motivated by guilt or shame, but by love. You see, when you, when you see how greatly you have been loved, you see, when you see how much Jesus has given for you, all you see, you, what you, happens is you long to give yourself back to that kind of king. You see, and until God shows you the good news about the gospel and all that Jesus has done for you, you will always keep going back to the empty wells that you run to and that you look to. You see, the Bible talks about how we're not just blind, but we are enslaved to sin, to the, to the desires of our own heart that are killing us. See, the truth is what we need is the God of the universe to open our eyes so that we might see him as the true treasure that he really is. You see, and when one day the Spirit of God opens your eyes to see that, and then every day on, you see the surpassing value of what Jesus has done for you and who he is and all that he has done. When he opens up your eyes to see Jesus and his kingdom as the field that is worth selling everything else to have, as the, the pearl of great price that is worth giving away all of the others that he might own. You see, that's the expulsive power of a new affection. You see, you can't just stop loving the things of this world. You have to have your heart captured by the king who made it. You see, the expulsive power of a new affection 
that drives out our surface idols and our source idols, the things that we love and worship more than Jesus. You see, what we find, the explosive power of that new affection is found in the love of God for you in Christ. You see, and that changes you. You see, it humbles you so that you can reject the idea that you can earn your way into the kingdom and instead you're able to come humbly and joyfully laying, laying, bowing down at the feet of the one who has earned it for you instead so that you might inherit as his kids what he has gotten for you. You see, that's the good news about the gospel this morning. See, Jesus has come, this young man has come to Jesus asking, where do I get life? And Jesus gave him an answer, but it wasn't the one he was looking for. And I fear this morning that some of you are here and you are looking for life. You're looking for the things that will really satisfy. You're looking for the things that will bring joy and true fulfillment. And what you hear Jesus saying is, give everything to me. Write me a blank check with your life. You see, and what I worry and what I fear this morning is that you will see the cost as too high. See, our world is littered with people, right, who have seen Jesus' call to absolute surrender as a cost that is too high, and who have instead pursued the lives that they think will give life and joy and fulfillment, and it just leaves a train wreck of people's lives. You see, and what I have prayed for you and what I long for you this morning is that you would see Jesus' gracious call, his, his merciful invitation. As the offer of life, that it actually is to you this morning. You see, Jesus is not trying to keep something from you by asking you to give it all to him. He's trying to give you the thing you're looking for. But the one way you find it is in him. The one way you find the life you are looking for is by giving everything else to him. That's it. That's the one way. You see, in every week, when we take communion, what we're remembering and what we're celebrating is all that Jesus did for us, his body, his blood, broken and shed for us so that we might be free from the bonds of sin that keep us stuck in slavery to the desires of our heart that just endlessly lead to death, that, that we would also be free to worship the good God who offers to give us true life, the thing that we are longing for. See, communion, it does not make you right with God. It does not change your status or your standing with him in any way. You see, instead, it's an opportunity for you to remember and to celebrate the person and the the work of Jesus, the only one who was good and who earned what you could never earn on your behalf so that by faith you might inherit what is his. You see the bread and the juice, they're in the back. There's a table on the right and on the left and you go back during our time of worship and you dip the bread, which is a reminder of his body broken for you and you put it in the juice, which is a reminder of his blood shed for you and you do it so that you might remember. See, the truth is we just forget. We get consumed by the trinkets of this world and we miss the true treasure. You see, and the only way you see the true treasure is when you see the king of the universe who has given himself for you on the cross. And so as we sing and as we worship this morning, as we remember the gospel together in song, if you've put your trust in him, if he's the one that you love more than anything else, and go back 
take communion. Do it as a, a chance to remember all that he has done for you so that he might remind you of why he is worth giving everything for. But if this morning, if you sense there is something clearly in your heart that, that you have put above God, something you are unwilling to give him, unwilling to lay down for his name, for his glory, then I would encourage you, talk with him about that before you go take communion. Or if this morning, for the first time, if you are realizing like this young man that you are unwilling to let God be first, you sense clearly what he is asking for, and this morning you have said no. I would just encourage you, hold off on taking communion. Ask God to change your heart so that you might be able to love him first. And so as we take communion, as we sing, talk with God this morning. See, Jesus invites us every day to ask the questions about the love of our heart. Proverbs warns us over and over about paying careful attention to the desires of our hearts. Where is it that Jesus' upside-down kingdom is graciously confronting your heart this morning? Where is his upside-down kingdom graciously confronting your heart this morning? What is it that would grieve you? What is it that would cause you great sadness if Jesus asked you to give it up? Is it a dream or a goal? Is it a relationship or a career or a family or a spouse? Ask him to show you that. Ask him to show you the things that you love more than that you love him. But ask him as well in the midst of that to show you how good the gospel really is. Ask him to help you see the treasure of Jesus and his kingdom for the, for the uncomparable, valuable treasure that it actually is. Ask him to change your heart. Ask him to show you that what you love more than him. But ask him to empower you to love him supremely. You see, you cannot do it without him. Ask him to give you the expulsive power of a new affection that it is, is his great love for you. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come to you this morning, God. God, my heart is heavy, God, because I know that there are so often things in my own heart that I am tempted to love more than you. God, in my affections for you, they, they wane sometimes, they, they get mixed, and my heart is so often divided. God, and I come, I ask you this morning, God, I need you to give me a heart that loves you supremely, heart that is willing to give anything to you. God, I need you to shape and to mold my heart and my character and, the, and my desires so that what I long for most is you, is you. God, and I pray the same for the people that are here this morning. God, that you might graciously reveal the things to them that they are longing for and loving more than you, the things that they would not give up to follow you. But I pray as well, Jesus, you might show them the incomparable riches of life in your kingdom. God, so they might see the, the treasures we hold for the trinkets they really are. God, by your spirit, God, open our eyes up to see the lies that this world gives us. That stuff and things will satisfy. That, that something other than you can give the life we're looking for. God, cause us a people, to be a people who is characterized by generously giving. Not just of our finances, but out of our time and our energies and, and all that we have. God, because the one thing that really gives life is you. God, and so I pray that you might help us to enter life. God, by giving everything to you. And pray these things in your good and gracious name. God, without your power, we cannot do it at all. God, graciously work in us for your name. God, for our good, for your great glory, we pray. Amen.